This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever documented the trend showing that the retina is incapable of signaling the lateral denticulate nucleus at the exact time point H2O in a thermally conductive vessel reaches the enthalpic threshold of vaporization? Oh, sorry. Let me switch languages. Have you ever noticed that a watch pot never boils? That's better, right? Welcome to the world of science translation. This week, we're going to venture into the languages of science and medicine and learn why they are so hard to comprehend. We'll hear from science and medicine translators who are working to help you understand this world in your mother tongue. And in our SAS class, we're going to take a look at how science is communicated so you can be both informed and entertained. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you on a unique language course and offer ways that you can speak science without going to night school. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Imagine you're a scientist back in the 16th century. You're making great discoveries that can advance humanity's understanding of the universe. You want to share your information with the world and follow through, making sure to speak in their language. You expect to be welcomed. You expect to be honored. You expect to change the world. Instead, you're condemned by the church, mocked by society, and maybe even put in jail. What are you gonna do? Easy answer, change the language. Only those who have studied and devoted their lives to science would be able to understand what you're saying. You can then use an entirely different form of publication, scientific and medical journals, to ensure your people have a chance to communicate without repercussion. Sure, it may not get you that dream you had earlier, but at least it would keep you safe. That's what science and medicine decided to do. The move worked out well. But in the 19th century, when science started to become the benchmark for proper and accurate information, a problem emerged. The language developed to keep the public out was so well ingrained that it had become its own entity. It had even splintered into different dialects. Each branch of science and medicine had its own language. Unless you were fluent in that particular patois, you were never going to appreciate what was being said. Now imagine someone from the public or a government official wants you to help them develop policy or actions based on your findings. You would need a translator. Though no one really ever considered this to be an actual need, let alone a profession. Thankfully, there was one person already paving the way. In 1821, a rather unknown scientist named Michael Faraday published an article in the Quarterly Journal of Science. It was a basic paper of little note. To prove it, here's a quote. All the usual attractions and repulsions of the magnetic needle by the conjunctive wire are deceptions. 
The motions being not attractions or repulsions, nor the result of any attractive or repulsive force, but the results of a force in the wire, which instead of bringing the pole of the needle nearer to or farther from the wire, endeavors to make it move round it in a never-ending circle and motion, whilst the battery remains in action. For anyone who wasn't regularly speaking about magnetic research, this would have been little more than an interesting, if not circular, curiosity. But Faraday knew this discovery was far more important. He just had to figure out a way to show it. And he did, by performing what most would consider today an elementary school experiment. He took a magnet and attached wires to each side. When it was just sitting there, there was no current. Then he added some metal to the mix. Not surprisingly, the magnet picked it up. But to everyone's shock, the wires carried a current. It was like magic. This was a stranger thing. But in reality, it was electromagnetism. He had effectively translated the language of physics into something everyone could understand. And best of all, it could be used to make something that could change the world. The electromagnet. Since then, it has become the basis for so much energy production. Power plants incorporate large versions to produce and provide electricity. Smaller versions are used to power a huge number of machines, from home appliances, music and video equipment, MRIs in hospitals, and those maglev high-speed trains. Electromagnets may also one day help us travel deep into space. But without that ability to translate, Faraday's experiment might have been ignored, and our world would look quite different than it does now. The translation of Faraday's experiments was just the beginning of what we now know as knowledge translation. My first guest has been researching this process and working to ensure the public can find, understand, and gain from health and medical research. She's also doing her best to help guide governments and other authorities to develop best practices so that our healthcare system is the best it can be. Her name is Maureen Dobbins, and she is an associate professor at the School of Nursing at McMaster University. More importantly, she is part of the National Collaborating Centre for Methods and Tools, which provides leadership and expertise to Canadian public health organizations. They are the ones working to make you healthier, one translation at a time. Tell us a little bit about knowledge translation and the work that you do. Sure. So uh, knowledge translation, put really simply, is all about uh, making sure that the best available evidence, and I'll talk about what that is in a moment, but making sure that the best available evidence is taken into account in decision-making in the world that I work in, that's public health, but really we're wanting that best evidence to be used in all types of decisions, uh, healthcare decision-making, and, and that's the area that I would uh, work the most in. And when we talk about best available evidence, while certainly 
the work that I've been involved in has focused primarily on the best available research evidence. There's still lots of different types of information or knowledge that informs our decision-making about the local context or societal preferences, political preferences, the types of resources. So it's about bringing all of that together the best of all of that together and then making uh, informed decisions uh, using all of that information. And how does a Canadian benefit from the work that you are doing? Uh, Well, if we just even think about it more broadly, not just the work that I do, but if we're able to realize knowledge translation, that means that every time a Canadian visits their doctor, steps into their local hospital, uh, accesses services from the local health department, it means that they're getting the most effective interventions that we know of. Uh, to treat whatever their uh, illness is or to help them stay as healthy as possible. So for the average Canadian, it should mean that they're getting the best possible care. It also means that they're not getting uh, interventions that perhaps aren't effective or potentially even uh, dangerous. That sounds great for healthcare, but what about at the home? Uh, One of the coolest papers you wrote, and actually one of the most cited, was evaluating the promotion of physical activity in kids aged 6 to 18 years. Now, this was back in 2013. How has the landscape changed since you showed that getting kids up to move is a very good thing, and how does knowledge translation fit into that? We were looking at interventions that were happening in schools uh, primarily to promote uh, kids 6 to 18 to be more active during the school day, but some of those interventions were also relevant to what could be happening in the home. And generally, uh, the review found that there was some promise that uh, by implementing changes in the curriculum, by having Uh, children and adolescents spending more time during the school day actively engaged in moderate to vigorous physical activity, that uh, we could actually get them doing more of that, and that uh, that resulted in some good uh, outcomes with respect to body mass index, weight, things like that. We still have a long way to go to really figuring out uh, how best we can get uh, or increase Uh, kids and youth to be more active. Now, there is one place where you are making a difference, but we have to go to the other end of the age spectrum. It's a very interesting project that you're working on at McMaster. It's called the Optimal Aging Portal. Tell the listeners a bit more about it and what people can learn, whether they're elderly or not. Essentially, uh, what the Optimal Aging Portal is, uh, it is bringing together uh, four world-class repositories of evidence that uh, span evidence that uh, clinicians, physicians, nurses uh, would use, so the best available evidence on what we can talk to individual clients and patients about. Uh, Then we have another repository that is looking at uh, public health evidence, another repository that looks at health systems evidence, and another repository that looks at social systems evidence. 
These are four separate uh, repositories that all exist at McMaster, but up until the time uh, that the portal occurred, they, there was no way to search them all at the same time. So we, uh, we were able to create a system that allows you with one click of a button to search all four databases at the same time, uh, and they all are providing access to information that would help us citizens to gather information on how to age optimally, and uh, we also um, have, are creating a variety of, of other types of knowledge products for citizens to to access through the portal. So we we know that you know the the scientific literature. Uh, isn't isn't for everyone to read. So we're trying to distill that even further to make scientific knowledge more easily accessible to your average Canadian. So we we write blogs where we we uh, identify reviews of importance to uh, optimal aging for those that are 60 plus that have that is high quality evidence that also has action messages of things we can tangibly do or not do uh, to help support optimal aging. And we write blogs about that in very layman's terms, really in a conversational type of style uh, to translate what the evidence is telling us, really, you know, framing it around what are the types of issues that the aging population in Canada is facing every day. In the future, then, do you see these tools and portals as being the best choice for anyone who wants good information, especially on public health, as opposed to, say, trusting the first couple of clicks on a Google search? Generally, uh, your average uh, Canadian really wouldn't know how to distinguish a very well-done study from one that isn't very well done and one that we may not want to influence uh, our thinking. And and certainly... Um, you know, we, we hear every single day about the latest study that uh, has come out. It's, uh, the, you know, the media will present the latest study, but oftentimes we really don't hear an unbiased or we don't hear at all about the quality of that study. So we, it really is a little bit of buyer beware or user beware that uh, we shouldn't believe a lot of what we hear. While I would love to hear that every single Canadian wants to learn the skills of how to appraise the quality of a study, I don't think that's very realistic. And so uh, an alternative is to turn to these types of proven resources uh, where folks like myself and uh, other colleagues, Dr. John Lavis and Dr. Anthony Alfonso Iorio, there's a group of us that have been really working on developing these types of repositories. We appraise the quality of all of the evidence that ends up on our site uh, in our repositories, and uh, we don't we don't necessarily screen out lower quality. We let people see that, but we provide that objective assessment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When you're hankering to know about something scientific or otherwise, you probably use your favorite search engine in the hopes of finding a website that contains the information you need. When the results come back, one of the first sites on the list probably will be Wikipedia. It was started back in 2001 by Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger. It was designed to be an online encyclopedia with a twist. It was made as a free, as in freedom, source for information. This meant anyone could register, log in, and add their knowledge to the site. Wiki, as it's now known, may be the destination of choice for a variety of searches, but when it comes to medicine and health, it's considered one to avoid. If you're a student working on any kind of research paper, you know the teacher or professor most likely will not accept Wikipedia as a reference. The problem lies in the very nature of Wikipedia. You can be completely anonymous and write whatever you think happens to be correct, even if it's not true. And if a contributor has a bias or belief, this could seriously impact the information being shared. In the world of education, this lack of transparency is a major problem. Trying to get around this hurdle can be difficult. However, considering over a billion people use Wikipedia as their first choice for research, someone has to get in there to be sure translation of science, and especially medicine, is accurate. Enter James Heilman. He's a doctor in Cranbrook, British Columbia, but he's also a Wikipedian. His handle is Doc James, and if you see this on any Wikipedia page, you know the information is going to be correct. In 2016, he was putting in close to 60 hours a week editing medical articles to ensure information people read was accurate. Heilman has joined forces with a much larger collaboration known as the Wikimedia Foundation, which is working with people across the world to improve the reliance on Wikipedia and bring it back to the reference lists of those essays and papers. Their work will ensure that when you feel you have a health issue, you'll be able to know the information that you find on Wikipedia is going to help you rather than make you immediately wonder if you're dying or have something worse. I spoke with Dr. Heilman about his work and why he feels the need to make Wiki trustworthy again. You've been contributing to Wikipedia for over 10 years. What made you decide to get involved in this effort? About a decade ago, I was working a night shift in the emergency department. I was looking around the internet and I came across this website, which just wasn't very good. And then I noticed that there was an edit button and I sort of hit the edit button and I realized that, that I could fix the internet. And, and that sort of like got me hooked. And I've been, you know, working on improving Wikipedia um, ever since. So you were fixing the internet? Well, you know, sort of. You know, what, what sort of drew me in even more is, you know, I initially came to this site. I realized that, you know, I could make improvements. Um, my improvements stuck. And then over time, I just realized how many people were relying on this as a source of healthcare information. And I realized as a physician, I feel that we have an obligation to make sure that all people have access to high quality healthcare information. And since, you know, so much of the world is turning to Wikipedia for this information, I as a physician believe that we have an obligation to make sure that Wikipedia is accurate. And that's really where the Wiki Project Med Foundation comes into it. You've been with them now for uh, about a decade, I believe. 
tell us a little bit more about how this started and, and where it's going. So, you know, I initially began just as a Wikipedia editor, and then over time I was becoming more and more involved. And I realized that, you know, the small community of volunteers within WikiProject Medicine um, uh, who are working to improve the content on Wikipedia, you know, we sort of needed a formal body through which we could interact with non-Wikipedians um, with respect to organizations that share our values but weren't directly, you know, in- involved in working on the content. So, you know, a number of years back, a, a small group of us formed an NGO called, called Wiki Project Med Foundation. And through this NGO, we've been, we've formed partnerships with organizations like Cochrane, um, through, with organizations like Translators of Borders, with organizations like the National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization, so that we can then bring in, you know, more partners who share our ideals of getting high quality healthcare content out to everybody. You're not just doing this in English. You're trying to improve content across many languages. How is it that you're able to accomplish this while making sure that you keep things accurate? I primarily work on content on English Wikipedia, but a number of years back, back around 2012, I met the then founder, uh, I met the founder of um, Transversal Borders, and, you know, I'm sort of telling her about this work I was doing to, you know, try to improve content in English and Wikipedia and, and that, you know, Wikipedia exists in um, nearly 300 languages. And through that connection, I started collaborating with Translators of Borders and we started, we put together a project to try to get content from um, English Wikipedia, uh, which we'd been working to improve, try to get these improvements into other languages. Um, you know, so over the last, you know, six or so years, we've translated nearly five million words of text, and we've been working in nearly 100 different languages. Since then, we've had a number of other partners beyond Translator Borders join these efforts. We've had some of the, you know, local Wikipedia chapters, such as Wikimedia Taiwan, form collaboration with medical students in Taipei to work on improving content in Chinese. We have uh, had some Wikipedians from uh, India join us. Uh, you know, one amazing volunteer has been Subhashandra Root, who's been translating content from uh, English into Odia. And, you know, the amazing thing about his story is, you know, he's a retired orthopedic surgeon in um, eastern India. His language, Odia, is spoken by 40 million people. There is no machine translation that exists in this language. He individually has translated more than a thousand articles from English into Odia. And, you know, for many of these topics, this is the first content to ever exist online in his language on these subjects. You're talking about many developing countries here. That must present a problem. Most people in the developed world have access to the internet and can find Wikipedia pretty easily. But if you're in the developing world, you may not have that luxury. How are you finding a way to get people access if you're putting so much time into improving the content? About half the world's population does not have access to the internet. Uh, you know, and, and of course, if you believe all people should have access to high-quality healthcare information, you either need to get people internet access or you need to figure out other solutions. So, you know, the solution a group of us have been working on these last few years is a project called Internet in the Box. And what this involves, this involves, you know, basically putting Wikipedia on uh, miniature, low-cost computers called Raspberry Pis. 
And these devices emit a Wi-Fi signal that people can then log on to with their cell phones. And then they can browse Wikipedia just like if they had internet. So, you know, in many areas of the world, cell phones are prevalent, even though access to the internet is not. You know, we've been, we've been shipping these devices around the world over the last few years. And, um, you know, uptake has been, has been very positive. Do you think that we might see traction from medical schools that would help medical students work with you so that we can accept Wiki as a source for good medical information in the future? So Wikipedia right now is one of the top sources of um, uh, content for medical students, both in the developed and the developing world. And back in 2012, 2013, we began collaborating with um, the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Um, you know, they, they pride themselves in being cutting edge. Uh, they have really bought into um, collaborating with, with Wikipedia. And we've had about nine or 10 classes of medical students from UCSF do electos in working on Wikipedia. So, you know, we get groups of between five and, and, and 40 medical students um, each semester come to Wikipedia and, and spend a month working on improving a topic. So um, this sort of started at UCSF, but we've seen a number of other medical schools uh, around the world take up these efforts. So we've seen schools from, from Israel. You know, I was mentioning we have a number of uh, medical schools in uh, Taipei also doing work on Wikipedia. So, you know, involving students in improving Wikipedia has become um, more and more common. When do you think we're going to be at a point where teachers and professors and other people will accept Wikipedia as being an actual citation that you can put at the end of your essay or paper or submission? In my opinion, Wikipedia is not a suitable reference for most um, uh, statements of fact. You know, if, if one's a researcher, um, you know, one wouldn't cite World Book. One doesn't generally cite the Encyclopedia Britannica. One generally shouldn't cite Wikipedia. As researchers, as students working on papers, you should be citing the primary and secondary literature. Um, you should be citing the review article. You should be citing the positions of well-respected medical bodies. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to explore a sector of science translation known as science communication. It's a growing part of the field, and our guest teacher is someone you might call a unique linguist in this area. Her name is Paige Giro, and she has been actively involved in SciComm for nearly a decade. She's received a doctorate for this work and is now helping companies learn how to use SciComm, as it's called, to ensure people are well-informed and take the right paths to health. How does science communication differ from science translation? So science translation really is a type of science communication, right? So there's a lot of reasons why we would want to communicate about science, just like there's many reasons why, for example, a teacher might be teaching in the classroom. There's many things that she might want to get across to her students. Sometimes it might just be to get them to memorize a series of facts, but, you know, maybe at some level, she wants them to start applying that knowledge and maybe even uh, do their own projects armed with the knowledge that she just gave them. So science communication is similar. There's many different reasons why we'd want to communicate about science. Um, so knowledge sharing is just one example of why we might want to communicate. 
sometimes it's just to excite people about science or to get them involved in doing scientific research with us. So I think we have to view science communication more broadly, that it's not always or just about um, sharing knowledge. Communicating science has been done for hundreds of years, most notably by Charles Darwin and his Voyages of the Beagle series. But only recently has it become recognized as a major part of doing science. What has led to this increase in interest and participation? So if we really think about it, in the age of Charles Darwin, science communication might have even been more important than than it is now. I think sometimes today we kind of assume that, especially, you know, scientists, we have our jobs have gotten more and more complex. Um, We're working on kind of smaller and smaller uh, pieces of a giant puzzle. And so I think sometimes we assume, well, there's already processes in place. You know, once we finish our research, we publish a research paper and the work is done for us in getting that message out. I think if we've seen anything in recent years, it's that we can't just assume that, that just putting it out there in a scientific journal does not equal actual translation of that knowledge to the people that really should be getting it. Um, So I think researchers used to, you know, have to write letters and get things published in newspapers and, you know, publish books and really push their messages out there. I think we're just starting to see a return to that idea of kind of a virtual coffee house of like, we need to have conversations, not just with other scientists, but with people who aren't scientists. We need to kind of go out there in public and have, you know, real-time conversations with people, write them letters, tell stories in order to really get that science across. Who are the people who are most likely to look for these efforts? So I have done some research on who reads science blogs. So it's kind of a niche question, but we found that people that are typically actively seeking out science information online tend to be very um, literate, smart, educated people. So they might not necessarily have science degrees or formal science education, but they tend to be people who are looking for pieces of information that they can't find somewhere else. So people who aren't satisfied with just a general, you know, store, a newspaper story around a topic that's very general and um, might not have all the details. So people who are really looking for communications, things written by scientists online or communicated by scientists or people that you know, they haven't been able to find that little nugget of information they're looking for that they really need for their health or for some decision they're trying to make. Part of the goal of SciComm is expansion of the audience. We want everybody to enjoy science. Have you found that there is one way that tends to work better than another? So I always tell, I give a lot of workshops for scientists, and I always tell people who are interested in science communication that they really need to think about their goal. So there really isn't one best way to communicate about science because each way might be better or worse for a particular goal that we have. So, for example, if our goal is to increase public trust in scientists and to help people see scientists as real humans um, who do fun things, we might share pictures from cool things we're doing in the lab, we might take selfies, we might communicate those, those very human aspects of science. But if we're talking to a policymaker or someone who just wants the, the facts um, very briefly and in a way that helps them make a decision, we might communicate it in very different ways and through very different mediums. So I think it's always important to think about what our goals are and who the audience is and how they best would like to you know, get the information. 
and in order to decide where we're putting out our communications, whether it's, you know, through pictures or through a blog post or through emails um, and what, you know, what the goal is so we can decide what best to, to the, the message should be. For the listeners who want to get involved in science communication, what advice would you give to them? So I always tell, you know, whether it's someone who's been in science for years, a scientific faculty member or a science student, the best way to, to get started is really to just get started. So the awesome thing about our media landscape today is there's so many opportunities for scientists to have a voice. So whether that's starting, you know, uh, getting on Twitter and starting to have discussions with other people, whether it's, you know, starting a blog or starting to create little videos that you post on YouTube, the barrier to entry is very low. And so you might not have a great idea right now of what your goal is or what you want to get out of your science communication, but it's a great time to get started into practice and to see what you like best, um, what you enjoy doing. And I'd say to start that way so that until you have an idea of exactly what you want to get out of your communication effort. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has inspired you to learn science as another language. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, including suggestions for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show him some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.